Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome back to the Free Marketeers podcast. I hope you're all doing well, having a good week. Uh, it is the 11th of November 2020. We just received news that President Ramaphosa will be addressing the nation this evening, I'm guessing, on concerns around increasing COVID cases, but we'll leave that for tonight and whatever fresh ideas the government has in store for us, we'll leave that for the next couple of hours. In this episode, I'm joined by a very, very special guest, someone um, who I admire very much with his research, his insights, the sort of track record he's built over the years, someone who we work with closely at the Free Market Foundation. We're joined by Fred McMahon from the Fraser Institute. Fred, thank you so much for being here. Uh, thank you, Chris, for uh, inviting me. And let me compliment uh, you and the Free Market uh, Foundation. You do just terrific work in uh, South Africa. If South Africa is to have a brighter future, you will be a large part of the reason why. Thank you. Thank you. We really appreciate that. And I mean, we do the work we do in the in the hopes that we can increase the quality of life of of all South Africans. That uh, economic freedom and prosperity isn't just the purview of the few. And in that vein, uh, today you're going to talk to us about the economic freedom of the world report that is produced every year by the Fraser Institute for anyone interested in articles and press releases on that. You can find that on our website. I'll link to that in the description below. Um, so Fred, I thought I would give the floor to you to talk about the EFW economic freedom broadly and why it's so important for governments and indeed citizens to understand why the concept is so important for their lives. Well, thank you, Chris. The order of attack today is a description of what economic freedom is, why it's important. Then we'll look at Africa and South Africa. Uh, and if we have time, I'll take a quick look at uh, what uh, history tells us about uh, the world's reaction to, uh, to a crisis. Uh, you can't say a crisis like COVID because we've never had a crisis like COVID, but a crisis <laughs> in general. Uh, Individuals have economic freedom when, uh, when the property they acquire without the use of force, fraud, or theft is protected from physical invasions by others. They are free to use, exchange, or give their property as long as their actions do not violate the identical rights of others. Now, that's kind of complicated way of saying that uh, uh, economic freedom means that you and your family make their own economic decisions. Uh, where to work, when to start a business, what to buy, uh, make their own economic decisions without interference from an overly powerful government uh, or uh, crony uh, capitalists. We look at five areas in measuring economic freedom, size of government and taxation. If government uh, taxes a disproportionate amount of your property away, then they violate uh, your economic freedom. Private property and the rule of law. This is doubtless the most important of the five areas. It is the foundation for economic freedom. Unless all individuals, regardless of whether they are rich or poor, uh, weak or powerful, what group they belong to or what religion they follow, unless the rule of law protects all equally, the rich and the powerful will limit the economic freedom of those who are less powerful and poorer. Sound money, this is simply, uh, uh, government. sound money, government can tax away, uh, sorry, Go government can uh, take your uh, property away through inflation as easily as it can through taxation. Uh, so sound money means that uh, the, your currency maintains its value and your property therefore maintains its value. 
trade regulation and tariffs, people in South Africa should be able to buy and sell uh, to anyone in South Africa and to anyone around the world. Regulation of business, labor, and capital markets. Um, uh, you should be able to start a business when you wish and close it when you wish. Uh, work for whom you wish and hire whom you wish. Borrow from whom you wish and lend to whom you wish. Uh, why is economic freedom important? Well, economic freedom is important intrinsically, just like the freedom of speech is important. You should, individuals should have the right, the intrinsic right to make their own decisions. But economic freedom has other, uh, has practical uh, implications too. Uh, as we've seen throughout history, the drive and ingenuity of free individuals, free to make their own decisions, to start their own businesses, create a much faster and wider path to growth and prosperity. All you have to do is look around the world uh, to see that. But they're also important for other freedoms. If you're beholden to uh, a greedy, uh, uh, crony capitalist elite, you can't make your, um, and they have power over you because they can determine whether, or uh, powerful government, and they have power over you because they can determine whether you get a job, whether you're able to start a business, even whether you're able to travel, whether you're able to feed and clothe your family, then they have all sorts of power over you to suppress other freedoms. If you're economically free and making your own way and your decisions are your decisions and you are not dependent on government or the powerful, then you can express your other uh, freedoms, freedom of speech without fear, freedom of association. But economic freedom also changes the very dynamic of a society. If you're in a society without economic freedom, controlled by government or crony elites, then people get ahead by making other people wor worse off, by stopping them from competing with them, by limiting the uh, range of goods and services they can get, by cementing their own power at the expense of others. So without economic freedom, people get ahead by making folks worse off. With economic freedom, the only uh, way uh, to get ahead in the free marketplace is to produce goods and services that other people voluntarily want to buy because they feel they're getting the best part of the deal. In a world of choice, you have to provide goods and services that make other people better off. So you go from a society without economic freedom uh, where um, you get ahead by making people worse off to society with economic freedom where you make get ahead by making people better off. And that changes the whole dynamics of society. It increases uh, trust in civil society. So economic freedom is important intrinsically. It's important for economic growth and prosperity. And it's important for a number uh, of other positive outcomes. Uh, the Economic Freedom of the World uh, Report um, uh, with authors James Gortney, uh, 
Bob Lawson, Josh Hall, and Ryan Murphy is an annual report. We look at 42 uh, government policies affecting economic freedom. And I'm glad to say we now have a gender disparity uh, adjustment. Um, it is a sad truth that in many societies, economic freedom is not equally shared amongst men and women. With this gender disparity, we are able to put at least a partial correction in of that. Now, I'm gonna to turn to the empirical evidence of why economic freedom is important. And I call these reflections on the audience, because again, when you look around the world, uh, you'll, you discover that only nations with economic freedom have produced prosperity and low levels of poverty for their people uh, and have produced stable democracies. So the age of global free trade, free market uh, economies and economic freedom have brought, this age has brought huge benefits to humankind. And while the human condition has improved immensely, only those that live in nations with high levels of economic freedom have fully benefited. Those nations with low levels of economic freedom live in conditions that are often little change from the 1950s. So let's first look at global poverty. Now, this is interesting. From 1950 to today, there has been a huge reduction in global poverty. Those who argue against free markets put up all sorts of statements about how free markets uh, impoverish people and make people worse off. And yet in the age of free markets, the number of people living in poverty has decreased dramatically. But that's not really the miracle. That's only part of the miracle. That is the number of people who are not living in extreme poverty. So the world's population has grown hugely since 1950, and yet the number of people living in poverty, despite this much greater population, has decreased dramatically, and as the percent of the population, it's astonishing. In 1950, three quarters of the world's population lived in extreme poverty. Today, only about one in 10 live in extreme poverty. That is a profound miracle and advancement. But again, those who live in free, economically free nations have benefited the most. So if we divide the number of nations, if we divide the nations in the economic freedom report into quartiles, and we look at the least free quartile, you see that half the population of the least free nations economically live in extreme poverty. The number of people who live in extreme poverty in the most free nations is one or two percent. So again, the benefits, the poverty reduction has, that great poverty reduction we saw has been concentrated in economically free nations. This is another way to look at it. 
in the least free nations, the poorest 10% have an income of under $1,000 a year. In the most free nations, the poorest 10% have an income of $12,000 a year. Now, $12,000 a year for the poorest 10% is a lot higher than the average income in many nations. So again, the benefits are concentrated in places where people can make their own economic decisions. This is per capita GDP. As you can see, it has increased dramatically. And here again is the miracle. The least, the people who live in the least free nations on average have an average per capita income of $5,000 a year. The average per capita income in the most free nations is $45,000 a year. Literacy has increased dramatically over this period. And again, the benefits are concentrated in economically free nations. So in the least free nations, uh, average in, uh, so in the least free nations, uh, uh, the level of literacy is only about 75% of the population. And there's a huge gap between the literacy of men and women, girls and boys. Where in the most free nations, there is almost no gap and 95% of the population uh, are literate. Life expectancy has increased dramatically. In 1950, the average person lived about to be about 47 years of age. Now it's about 73 years of age. And again, the concentrations are in the most free nations. The least free nations, the average life expectancy is about 65. In the most free nations, it's about 81. Given that I am now over 65, I'm glad that I grew up in a nation with a high level of economic freedom in Canada. Now, this just puts in words what I was saying about how the benefits are captured in the most free nation. Now, one last thing before I move on. People who oppose free markets tend to now realize that free markets do in fact produce higher levels of prosperity. But they say, ah, that doesn't matter. What really matters is life satisfaction, happiness. And who could be happy in a dog-eat-dog -dog free market world? Well, as it turns out, levels of life satisfaction are considerably higher in free market economies. And much to the surprise of the sociologists who conducted uh, what is becoming fairly extensive research on what causes happiness or life satisfaction, uh, only two factors show up as causation, and that is health and economic freedom. If you get a raise and make more money, you're happier for a little while, and then you subside back to your previous level uh, of happiness. But if you're healthy 
you stay happier than if you're unhealthy. And most important from our perspective is it increases happiness because people actually want to be in charge of their own lives, want to make their own decisions. When you are powerless because of a crony uh, elite or an overly uh, mighty government and you can't make your own decisions, that has a deleterious effect on your level of happiness. Now we're gonna look at some rocket nations. One argument that people will sometimes posit against economic freedom is, well, the nations that uh, are economically free are rich and they've always been rich. So it's just a matter of inheritance. In fact, that's not at all true. Let's look at Asia as an example. Right, if uh, I can jump in quickly, I'm assuming sure. uh, we're not gonna talk about the rocket man from North Korea, right? <laughs> no, we're talking about the true rocket people in South Korea. Okay, good. Uh, and this is a marvelous example. Uh, Korea uh, was dirt, was uh, dirt, was Korea and Singapore were both dirt poor at the end of the Second World War. Both had been devastated and uh, ripped apart with almost all their infrastructure. Uh, destroyed, horrible, horrible conditions. They were two of the poorest places on earth. And then Korea had to go through uh, a violent civil war. So these were places that certainly did not start rich. This is the average level of economic freedom in Asia, as you can see uh, through the 70s and into the 80s. It grew, but then it stabilized. This is the economic freedom of Korea. Uh, and as you can see, it had a bit of a slow start, but then uh, it took off and much surpassed uh, the average level of economic freedom in Asia. And then Singapore, which has traditionally been the second highest rated nation in economic freedom, is way, way ahead of the Asian average and way, way ahead of South Korea. Now, what does that mean as far as income goes? Well, the average income in Asia hasn't really, it has increased, but it's still very low, only about $5,000 per person. But look what's happened to the average income in South Korea. South Korea went from a devastated economy, devastated and divided country, to having first world levels of uh, prosperity. And because economic freedom uh, encourages democracy, it also has first level, uh, first world levels of freedom and democracy. But then look at Singapore, a tiny spit uh, of land, a city built on a swamp. Look what's happened to that with its high level of economic freedom. That's why I call it a rocket uh, uh, nation. So it's not inherited wealth. It's economic freedom that does it. And by the way, nations that have turned away from economic freedom go in the opposite direction. Believe it or not, in 1970, Venezuela was the 10th most economically free nation uh, in the world. And it was the richest nation on a per person basis by far in all of Latin America. And this was before the oil price spike. In fact, the oil price spike in Venezuela was part of its undoing. Uh, the crony elites grabbed the oil prices 
grab the oil wealth and suppress the rest of the population. And the crony capitalists paved the way for Hugo Chavez, and that you can now see the disaster that's happened there. Uh, let's look at the European Union and Ireland. Ireland has was long uh, the poorest nation in Northern Europe. But Ireland moved past the EU average in economic freedom, and Ireland, well, um, every once in a while, my PowerPoint presentation takes on a life of its own and replaces the slide. What you should see on this screen is Ireland below the level of economic of uh, prosperity in the European Union and then taking off like a rocket uh, ship and also recovering. It was one of the worst nations hit by the financial crisis. Uh, and it's uh, 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 recovered strongly. In fact, that arrow is supposed to show what happened before and after the financial crisis. Okay, so we'll look at Africa and South Africa. Uh, economic freedom in Sub-Sahara Africa since 1980 uh, has increased uh, somewhat. Uh, Botswana has long had the highest level of economic freedom in Africa. It no longer does. Uh, it's been surpassed by Mauritius uh, and sometimes Rwanda. But over the course of history, it's had on average, the highest level in Sub-Saharan Africa. And of course, you know what's happened with South Africa. Uh, it moved up quickly at the end of apartheid, uh, but then it stagnated and has fallen. So um, the average income in Africa has been pretty stagnant. It's moved up a little bit since 1960, but not terrific. And there we have another rocket nation. That's Botswana. Now, Botswana has uh, diamonds, uh, but there are a lot of African nations with a lot of resources, and only Botswana, with its economic freedom, has really used them to benefit the people. No one says, ah, Nigeria, what a great rich nation because it has oil and gas. Botswana is a great rich nation, not because it has just diamonds, but because it has um, uh, economic freedom and its people have been able to build. And there's the sad story of South Africa's average per capita income now surpassed uh, by uh, uh, Botswana and pretty stagnant. Uh, obviously a burst after the end of apartheid when economic freedom grew. But now, unfortunately, it's uh, uh, stagnant and perhaps even declining. Just going to show you uh, the economic freedom of various regions of the world. We'll start with Africa, Sub-Saharan Africa down there. Uh, obviously, North America with it, uh, its high in economic freedom, which has propelled its prosperity. Uh, similarly, for the EU, very prosperous, a very high level of economic freedom, including in the Scandinavian states. People often try to say that Sweden and Denmark 
uh, are socialists. That's not true. They may have large governments, but they can afford large governments because they're rich. In every other area of economic freedom, rule of law, regulations that are business and entrepreneur uh, friendly, openness to trade, Scandinavian nations are at top of class uh, in economic freedom. So Europe with its high level of economic freedom has produced prosperity. There we see Asia or ASEAN, not all of Asia, and that's moved up in economic freedom. Now, I suppose, and there's the uh, world, Asia used, ASEAN used to be below it, now it's above it. Uh, and now I suppose we're gonna see something that in a perverse sense might be thought of as good news for Sub-Sahara Africa. The South America has declined to about the South African level, and the Arab world has declined below the South African level. So Sub-Sahara Africa now for the first time can say it's not the region of the world with the lowest level of economic freedom. Fortunately, that has more to do with the problems in the Arab world than success in much of Africa. This is where South Africa stands. Uh, so in, I mentioned for there are five areas where we look at economic freedom and we look at 162 jurisdictions. In size of government, South Africa is 107th. Uh, and that's even worse than it looks because less wealthy nations typically have smaller governments. South Africa has the size of government that maybe Sweden could afford, uh, but South Africa uh, couldn't. And Sweden could afford it because if you went over to the legal system, instead of being 54, Sweden would be third uh, or fourth. Now, 54th may not look bad, but that's really a failing uh, mark. Uh, as a cornerstone of economic uh, freedom, uh, you need a legal system that's right at the top to produce wealth and prosperity. And Chris, you'd know more than I do, but my sense is that there's been some deterioration in the legal system in South Africa. So we might see that go down. Gender disparity. Now, our measure of gender disparity only captures legal restrictions uh, on women. Uh, and there are 78 jurisdictions in the world with no legal restrictions on the economic rights of women. So South Africa is tied for first with 78 uh, other nations. Unfortunately, this does not capture societal or cultural restrictions uh, on women. Sound money, South Africa's 98th. Trade freedom, this is absurd. Uh, 113th out of 62. South Africa is not gonna get rich by buying and selling to South Africans. It's gonna get rich by buying and selling to the seven or eight billion people on, on, on the planet. And if you look at South Africa's location, it is ideally situated to do so. Uh, uh, regulation. Sorry, Fred, before you jump to the next one, it'll be interesting to see how, if at all, the introduction of the Africa Continental Free Trade Agreement impacts that trade freedom ranking. Of course, you know, if all African countries sign on to it, but I know South Africa 
the one sort of good idea coming out of South Africa lately is it seems the government is quite keen on that trade agreement. So maybe we'll see some improvement there. Now, actually, let me ask you a question about that, if I may. Uh, oftentimes, regional free trade agreements are more often regional protectionist uh, arrangements. How does the uh, African uh, deal look? So in terms of cross-border tariffs, regulations, that sort of thing, it looks at eliminating those. So in that regard, yeah, I, I think you could lay the same charge in that it's sort of inward looking, but at least for me, the uh, yeah, maybe the saving grace in a way, I know it's a low bar, but is that it could help just lower the general cost of trade within Africa, the, the sort of movement of goods, the issues around bribery and corruption at the borders, that kind of thing. I think it's focused on increasing the flow of goods. If you can talk about sort of blood flow in a, in a body, it's looking at unclogging those arteries in a way. Um, I think it will, if all the African countries sign on, and I think Nigeria still hasn't, so that's obviously a big one that needs to ratify this agreement. If someone like Nigeria signs on, then you can have Africa maybe looking at negotiating with the EU, with the US and Canada, um, with the Asian countries, that sort of thing, and then looking at trade agreements more broadly. But I think for now, it's focused on increasing intra-Africa trade. Well, that would be in advance, as you probably know, the two regions in the world with the smallest level of intra-regional trade are Sub-Saharan Africa uh, and the Arab world. Mm -hmm. um, so at least opening to the broader market would be in advance. Um, so dividing up regulation into three areas in uh, credit regulations, uh, South Africa is 52nd, labor regulations, 81st, and this labor regulations are tremendously uh, important. Uh, you know, uh, people want to argue that a heavily regulated labor market uh, protects workers. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, it uh, is horrible news for workers. I'll just take uh, perhaps the uh, strongest example of that. Uh, regulations that stop businesses from firing workers. That means businesses actually don't create jobs. Uh, if when you hire someone, you cannot uh, fire them, yeah, even if your business collapses or they're a bad employee, you tend not to hire anyone because you're stuck with them uh, forever. And in fact, people can be driven into bankruptcy paying employees in a downturn that they can, cannot afford to pay. And business regulations, uh, horrible sand in the gears for starting uh, businesses and creating jobs and prosperity. Uh, and those two areas are fairly easy to, uh, to improve. Uh, so South Africa can make advances on those almost uh, immediately. And I know you're working hard to create such advances. Uh, well, <laughs> my PowerPoint is particularly um, uh, obnoxious today. Uh, this is, so we now have half a, half, a, half a screen graph. That's what's happened to South Africa all overall in economic freedom since 1995, the end of uh, uh, apartheid. 
Uh, so it uh, went up almost immediately, and now it's stagnated and moved a little bit down. Uh, over size of government, uh, um, a very worrisome fall. Legal system, it went from uh, disastrous, of course, in the age of apartheid uh, to better, but still not good enough. And sadly, it looks like uh, what we talked about earlier, that uh, recent decline is becoming evident there. Uh, sound money, uh, that looks good, uh, but almost every nation has solved the inflation thing. So you're still fairly low there and there are some worrisome things. Trade freedom, mediocre and declining. Regulation, mediocre uh, and declining. Um, this, if you want to post the presentation, uh, this is a handy reference for how all African nations uh, rank in economic uh, uh, freedom. Mor Mauritius, as I mentioned, is top now. Botswana uh, is second. You can see where South Africa is, and you can also see the Sub-Sahara uh, average, uh, those at the bottom half. Uh, this is per capita. Uh, growth 1995 to 2018. Uh, it's, a, uh, as you can see, Botswana, Mauritius, and Rwanda, the top, have performed rather well. Nigeria, I suspect, because of the oil. Um, uh, world, Sub-Saharan Africa, and South Africa um, do not have good records here. This shows uh, economic freedom, the overall score in yellow, and GDP uh, in uh, blue. So you can read the score on the left side and the average income on the right side. And you can see a little bit of a relationship there. But economic freedom works with a leg. If you make a change this year that improves economic freedom, it's going to be three or four years before the investment takes hold, the jobs are created, people gain to trust. So look what happens if we put in a four-year leg. You see almost an exact correlation between uh, when uh, EF declines, GDP tends to decline. When EF grows with a leg, um, uh, with a leg, uh, GDP grows. So this shows you how important it is for South Africa to strive uh, to increase its economic freedom, the tremendous work you're doing. Now, I did have a session, uh, a section on looking at the world's reaction to crises, uh, but I've exceeded my time already, so uh, we can save that for another day rather than uh, keep your viewers uh, uh, over time. Um, I mean, uh, yeah, I have a few questions that jumped to mind. Well, first of all, thanks for that. I think a wealth of information and for people, you know, who sometimes when we talk about maybe what strikes people as abstract concepts like economic freedom, they don't always realize how it impacts their lives. But here you can see in the hard data, in the hard numbers, the more economic freedom your country has, the better off people's quality of life tends to be of course there's all sorts of factors involved and variables but it's a general you know that's sort of how hard work so i just thought i'd ask you just about COVID. i'm assuming what you talked about the lag and that sort of thing your general i guess impression 
if you would like to touch on that for a minute or two, just how lockdowns will influence, I guess, um, economic freedom in the, in the years to come. Of course, we know the impact has been hard this year, but how you think it'll impact what the EFW shows us maybe in five years time or 10 years time. Sure. Well, I won't go through the presentation, but I'll just briefly describe right. it. Uh, I looked at financial crisis. So there have been the Asian financial crisis, Latin American financial crisis. Uh, there were uh, three separate crises that hit uh, um, Scandinavian uh, nations. Uh, and in all, and of course, the 2007 and 2008, 2009 financial crisis. And uh, this will surprise people, but in all those cases, economic freedom declined marginally at the time of the crisis. That won't surprise people. What will, will surprise people is that it increased in all nations thereafter, particularly in Scandinavian nations. When they recovered from their banking crises, there was a significant increase in economic freedom because Scandinavians realized that it was lack of economic freedom that was hobbling their economies. Now, the one non-financial crisis uh, that I looked at was the Arab Spring. So that's a social and political crisis, albeit with economic underpinnings, but it was mainly a social political crisis. After that, economic freedom fell throughout the uh, Arab world uh, as governments uh, frightened by the Arab Spring sought to increase control thereafter. That provides only the sketchiest bit of evidence for what will happen after the uh, COVID crisis. A little bit, a little bit of insight, but not a lot. Um, here are the dangers. Governments all over the world are increasing their role uh, in the economy. It is going to be very difficult for those governments to back out of that role in the economy afterwards. All sorts of uh, job subsidy uh, programs uh, and so Hi, sorry, something happened there. Uh, all sorts of job uh, uh, subsidy programs and so on. Not all those jobs are coming back. Are people going to be uh, on permanent uh, furlough thereafter? Um, will there be a deterioration in the rule of law? Lots of people complain about mask mandates and so on. Uh, I personally don't take that as necessarily a limit uh, in freedom, mask mandates, uh, socialization, and so on. Uh, the old, an old cliche argument about freedom is uh, the freedom of your fist stops at my face. In other words, you are not allowed to do something that violates the freedom of others. Uh, if uh, you spread disease, either by not wearing a mask or socially uh, gathering inappropriately, uh, then you are not necessarily limiting people's freedom because you're protecting the overall population's freedom. Now that means you have to have scientific proof that it's uh, uh, necessary. Um, and there's some debate about that, but these things are not necessarily encroachments uh, on freedom. That said, 
there is always a danger that government will take its increased social regulatory power that may be appropriate in a pandemic and continue after the pandemic than before. I noticed in the first Zoom meetings, uh, people tended to wear ties and shirts and uh, sports coats and be shaven. Now, when we have a Zoom meeting in uh, Fraser, uh, obviously sales of razor blades have dramatically declined. Um, uh, uh, jackets and shirts are no longer de rigueur, uh, and you absolutely never see a tie. So I think, uh, uh, you know, uh, divest from tie manufacturing firms uh, right now. That's the only solid prediction I can make. I don't think we were going to get into investment advice, but uh, but there we go. <laughs> um, just another question I had was around South Africa specifically, and just, I guess, ideas or suggestions that you had for the government and those easy wins that they could make in terms of improving our economic freedom ranking. Uh, I didn't expect we'd get into investment advice on this episode, but but there we go. Um, Fred, just another question I had, you know, could be a relatively quick one, depending on how deep you want to get, but just those sort of regulatory wins that you mentioned governments could could implement. What could the South African government theoretically, you know, if they if I sent them this presentation and they listened to us, what could they do to improve our economic freedom ranking, do you think, the sort of the low-hanging fruit, if it, as it were? Sure. Well, you'd know the details on this better uh than, than I, but any frictions in the uh, job market, anything that makes it difficult or expensive for employers to uh, offer work, like restrictions uh, on firing, restrictions on hiring, uh, overly powerful unions that restrict jobs just to the privileged part, anything that any of those things that can be removed, they don't protect workers, they protect the privilege. Mm -hmm. Anything that can be done to remove those would be a huge advance. The other low-hanging fruit is business regulations. Uh, and South Africa does horribly uh, on that. So any frictions in setting up a business, long uh, permission uh, waits, um, uh, on certain regulations so that you don't know uh, um, what you have to do to meet the regulations. Mm -hmm. Also opens the way to bribery uh, and corruption. If there's a long wait or if the regulations are uncertain, uh, there's a temptation to grease the palm of the person who's in charge uh, of regulations. So anything like that in starting a business, also anything that stops, that uh, limits the closure of business. That may sound like uh, an odd thing, but if you start a business, you're taking a huge risk to begin with. And if it doesn't work out, you can escape maybe with some uh, opportunity left. But if you aren't allowed to close your business, it just sucks all the wealth out of you and puts another great inhibitor in starting a business. Um, so, Again, you would know uh, what barriers there are in the labor market and in starting, operating, and closing a business. Those things can be changed virtually overnight. 
with an unemployment rate of 42% after the second quarter of this year, you would think governments would be keen to, to take any radical steps. But at the moment, it, the, the biggest focus is on a mass infrastructure drive. That seems to be the, the so-called silver bullet that they think is going to solve everything. But again, for infrastructure, you need capital formation and capital investment. And in that regard, you need to make it easy for people to invest. So we, we also, of course, have the big challenge of expropriation without compensation. So you touched on property rights. So if the government decides to amend Section 25 of the Constitution to allow for expropriation without compensation, I'm sure that will have all sorts of deleterious effects, not just on our ranking. I mean, that's just sort of a number on a piece of paper. But when you look at it translated into people's lives, the ranking impacts their quality of life. But I think those were the main questions I had for you. I'll give you the last word. Any sort of parting thoughts you might have for the viewers and the listeners? Uh, no, I'll just make a quick comment on the land uh, business. Mm -hmm. uh, in many cases, land reform um, is important mm -hmm. and appropriate, but that's land reform. Simple expropriation of property um, is disastrous. And of course, uh, you can see that in your neighbor, uh, Zimbabwe. It happened to some extent in Venezuela and is part is part of one of the many reasons for the uh, problems there. Uh, so um, uh, it would be a dark winter uh, that South Africa could be heading into in a Zimbabwe type winter if that gets out of hand. Yeah, yeah no, I think it's important to, to point to where, you know, I like to say that the sort of ideology you hold influences the policies that you implement. The policies you implement have effects on people's lives. So if you implement the right policies, you're going to have good effects. If you implement disastrous policies, people are going to suffer. And in 99% of cases, it's the poorer people who in South Africa, the majority yes. of whom are, are African. So who will suffer the most from, from policies like that. But on that note, um, I think a good stark warning for, for South Africa if we implement the right policies, we'll see our ranking improve. We'll see quality of life improve. If we don't, then we'll have to bear the fruits of that. So, Fred, I want to thank you once again for your time today, your insight for the presentation. I think it's invaluable um, to anyone watching. Um, if you found value in this, please rem remember to like the video. Please share it on your social media platforms. Please also, if you haven't yet, subscribe to our YouTube channel. Please continue sharing all our articles, media releases, research. We greatly value the support that you give to us, especially in this very difficult year. We've all been through the ringer, um, but we'll get out of it, I think, um, next year and in the coming years in the right sort of vein if we all keep pushing for the right ideas and the right policies. Uh, I think we'll end it there. I hope everyone has a good day um, and a good week ahead, and we'll have more episodes and content out for all of you um, very soon. But for now, we'll say bye-bye, um, and uh, we'll talk to you again soon. Thank you so much.